Hey, it's Dan. It's been a whirlwind bunch of weeks around here with some great episodes, but also an unrelenting schedule. If you like this episode, please help us to make more by becoming a Patreon for just $3 per month. You'll get a t-shirt, but you'll also get all the good feelings that come with knowing that you're supporting a show that spotlights community voices and important issues here in Ohio. To do that, please go to patreon.com slash prognosisohio. That's patreon.com slash prognosisohio. And thanks. We really appreciate it. Welcome back to Prognosis Ohio. Today's episode has been in the works for a while, and we're hoping that it's going to be the first of many. I'll be talking with Dr. Tracy Nahara and Kelly Visral from the Children's Defense Fund of Ohio, an organization that champions policies and programs that lift children out of poverty, protect them from abuse and neglect, but also ensures kids access to appropriate and targeted health care, quality education, and a moral and spiritual foundation. As you're no doubt already thinking, this mission is a pretty big lift in a state that's been behind the eight ball on child and maternal health for a long time. We've noted again and again on this show that there's a paradox in our state, which has some of the nation's most renowned medical institutions, including children's hospitals, but our state continues to lag in key health indicators in child health. It turns out that in addition to having a lot of passion for child health and talking about child health, you actually need to fund stuff. Our guests today are going to be sharing some perspective on what their organization's doing to try to improve the situation for kids in our state. First, we'll be discussing critical supports for kids in the state's biennial budget, which is being negotiated and shaped as we speak. Obviously, with the pandemic still in full swing, the stakes couldn't be higher for getting the budget right. And second, we'll be talking about how proposed legislation about doulas stands to improve maternal and child health experiences and outcomes in our state. I hope you enjoy this appropriately sweeping discussion with some really great advocates for kids in our community. Dr. Tracy Nahara is the Executive Director at Children's Defense Fund Ohio. Previously, Tracy co-led the Ohio Appalachian Collaborative and the Teacher Incentive Project for the State of Ohio in her work with Battelle for Kids, where she worked with teachers, principals, and superintendents to implement college and career readiness initiatives, advocating for education equity, and the inclusion of the rural voice in state and federal education policy. She also worked for the State of Ohio's Office of Budget and Management, serving as the Education Section Chief for three governors. Kelly Visral leads CDF Ohio's Children's Health Policy Agenda, which aims to ensure that all children have access to child-specific, high-quality health coverage and services that are affordable for both families and caregivers. Kelly began her career as a legislative aide in the Ohio House of Representatives and went on in 2001 to become Associate Director of Government Affairs for the Ohio State Medical Association. Before joining CDF Ohio, she also directed the Government Relations Department for the Ohio Pharmacists Association and the Ohio Children's Alliance. Tracy and Kelly, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. Really appreciate you being here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, thank you. So let's jump right in. We have two, um, you know, related but different themes we're going to address today. So we're going to kind of start with one and move on to the other. Uh, you know, we're going to be talking about the Ohio budget. The, um, that's the, the process that's in, in, in the works right now, but also uh, some new legislation, proposed legislation regarding the role that doulas could uh, and hopefully will play uh, in child and maternal health. So. Let's start by talking budget, namely, you know, this biennial budget we have it here in Ohio. Every two years, um, you know, the stakes are extremely high, right? We have months of negotiations, positioning, advocacy, because we're setting the priorities for our state for 
not just one year, but for two. Uh, we're going to be linking in the show notes to some primers on the budgeting process. Um, friend of the show, Lauren Anthes at the Center for Community Solutions does great work on this. So I always like to plug his work. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about you know the Children's Defense Fund. Um, what do you do during this period? What's your role and what's the role of organizations like the Children's Defense Fund um, during this process? Sure. So um, Children's Defense Fund, we've been operating here in Ohio for about 40 years. And we believe that all children deserve an opportunity and all the assets that they need to thrive and flourish into adulthood. And of course, um, with so much of um, resources that you know do, su- do support children, especially those that are most vulnerable in our state, um, that flow through the state. Um, the state budget is really a critical document. In fact, we believe it's a moral document. It should be a reflection of our priorities um, as individuals, as communities, and how we treat um, those most vulnerable in our society. And, you know, I, I should also state, you know, um, I spent a number of years working for the state's Office of Budget Management. Um, I was a session chief for their um, education group under three governors. And, you know, it's probably for me, I know this is probably a little perverse, but it's one of the most exciting times of the year or the biennium, um, you know, to go through this because it really gives us an opportunity to lay out there what are our priorities? You know, how are we going to treat um, individuals? How are we going to grow prosperity throughout the state and do so in a way that is responsible and, you know, honors the investments of taxpayers? Yeah, we, we love people on this show that are, get excited about things like budgets. So that's that's perfectly allowable here. But it is the, the old thing. I, I love when the way you describe the budget as a moral document, uh, the old saying that, you know, don't tell me what you stand for. Tell me what you know you are funding and supporting, and then I'll tell you what you stand for. So you know the rhetorical posturing comes down to this moment of what are we willing to fund, what are we willing to support, actually. Absolutely, and when you ask about you know what are the roles of nonprofits and what are the roles of children's organizations in the state budget, it is to be that voice at the table for them. Because remember, I mean, children don't vote. You know, for for many uh, for many children who are not working, <laughs> right? They're not paying taxes. Um, for many children, you know, they don't have a lobbyist, um, so they don't have a voice in the halls of power. They don't have a voice in this budget. So it's up to organizations like Children's Defense Fund, you know, like so many other statewide organizations that are working on their behalf and in their best interest, um, to be that voice. You know, and in a way to um, speak their truth. So let's turn to Kelly next, and I'm, I'm curious if we can start down this path of just discussing some of the policy priorities here. Um, you know, I'm guessing there are lots of them. We we know, and we've talked on this show quite a bit. I mean, Ohio continues to lag in a number of key indicators with maternal and child health, um, and we've made some progress on some of them. Health disparities um, continue to be a huge issue in our state. So where do you even start in a process like this to figure out, you know, where, where the high yield focus is? Well, our focus at Children's Defense Fund is always children. But, uh, but we know that children, you know, they're not a single unit. They come as part of a family. So, you know, we try to look when, whenever we're focusing on policy at how it affects children and how it affects children within families. And what we know in looking at Ohio data is that there is black families 
um, brown families are at a distinct disadvantage when it comes to health care. Um, and COVID-19 pandemic has truly brought this to light, uh, the many shortcomings in our healthcare system. So, you know, what we've done is layered this public health crisis on top of an economic crisis on top of a healthcare system that was already fraught with um, inequities in maternal and child health. So when looking at our policy priorities, um, we, we really try to focus on what are some tangible things that we can get done that would really move the needle in terms of maternal and infant health. And um, while directly they're not addressed in the budget, um, the governor's um, as or the governor's budget and the as introduced budget um, do focus a lot of their money into ch into infant health, maternal health, child health, which is great, and we greatly appreciate that. Um, so we've kind of narrowed ours down to three main focuses for our policy priorities. Um, we are looking at extending uh, postpartum coverage for um, women to 12 months after birth. Um, and as I said, while this isn't directly um, addressed in the budget, ODGFS does have um, intentions to add the substance use disorder population into that 12-month coverage. So that is a start. We'd like to see them mm -hmm. expand it to cover all women. And that's something that we'll be working on. Um, we'd also like to expand Medicaid coverage to, um, to cover doula care services. And then a third piece that, that we're really interested in is the evidence-based home visiting piece. Um, and this is something that is addressed in the budget. Um, the governor has um, actually put in there, I believe, $41 million over two years for the Help Me Grow program, which is their evidence-based home visiting program. It comes in and it just works with women and families, making sure that um, the baby is thriving, that the mom is doing okay, that they're not having any problems adjusting to that new life, um, you know, coming into the family. Uh, helping them, um, you know, what does the baby need if they've never had a child? Or if they're struggling with some type of substance abuse, it, it addresses that. If they're struggling with housing, it addresses that. So it addresses a lot of those pieces. Tracy, what do you want to add to that? I mean, how, how are you thinking about the priorities or any any kind of additions to what Kelly took us through there? Right. So for the 12-month continuous care you know, for, for Medicaid, um, the Department of Medicaid, they, they are interested in working with the population of moms who have just given birth, who are, you know, have a substance use disorder, right? And so what we'd like to do because of the racial inequities, because of the historical inequities, and because of our Ohio significantly high infant maternal um, mortality rates, you know, expanding that to that 12 month care to all moms, um, you know, right when a mom gives birth, um, I believe her eligibility for Medicaid is at, um, help me out, it's 206% of poverty. Um, but the moment she gives birth, you know, she has 60 days. And on that 61st day, her eligibility drops back down to 138% of poverty. It's like a cliff. So, yeah. So it's like, why, why stop it there? You know, especially given um, the significant rates that we have. Um, 
But that's really all that I would add. I mean, it just makes sense. If if infant mortality, if maternal mortality are truly issues that Ohio is serious about addressing and mitigating and reversing the trends on, um, you know, these are these are efforts that we can have right off the bat. And the other thing that I would also add is that, you know, the United States trails the rest of the industrial industrialized world um, in infant and matern- maternal health and mortality. Um, and just to put it in perspective, Ohio is in the bottom quartile of all states on those measures. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, clearly a lot of work to do. And it, when the governor came in, you know, um, there, there was a lot of enthusiasm because of just how much he talked about child and maternal health. Right. And and he seemed to appoint people to key positions that cared about that issue a lot, too, which is obviously a very different kind of question from what actually gets funded. And and that's the, the, the process that we're in. We're going to see what actually makes it in there. I guess I, I, I want to ask, I'll, tr- I'll turn to Kelly, but wh- what is the level of hope for this process? I mean, are there some areas where there seems to be more consensus about some of the priorities that Children's Defense Fund um, has, has laid out? Are there some uh, areas that, that seem to be a little bit of a bigger lift? Um, well, as I mentioned before, the home visiting um, piece is taken care of currently in the budget. Um, and we're very hopeful that it remains at the level that it's being funded. We feel that, that is, that's a great amount of money. They're looking to triple the number of families that take part in the home visiting program. So, you know, it needs to be fully funded. The 12-month continuous care piece, um, you know, we've taken a baby step in that piece with the substance use disorder coverage of that. Um, And we have had several discussions with Department of Medicaid about the possibility of expanding that piece to cover all eligible women. Um, So, you know, we're hopeful that if this is some sort of pilot project that they're doing, when they see the great outcomes that that they're getting with this SUD population, that it might be something they consider in the future. And and we, you know, we understand the the economic situation and you know where Ohio is with the pandemic. Um, so, but but as Tracy said, this is a moral document. And if if what you feel is important are families, if that is what you value, then that needs to be something that you, you know, show me the money. How much do you care about families and children? Is there a concern that COVID is boxing out certain priorities in this area? I mean, as I was preparing to think about this conversation with you both today, I was thinking about how, you know, with all this conversation about older Americans and and rightfully so right we've we've just had this horrendous experience with uh, nursing facilities and elder care and you know there's been this real focus but did kids kind of get cut out during that are you in a certain way trying to bring back in kids and get us back on that track that we are in or on in the pre-covid moment you know I think that's a really interesting question so I I would say that I, I don't believe that children were um, you know, boxed out, right? If anything, I think that what we've seen right now, especially with the governor's proposed budget, is that children are very much at the top of mind, especially when you look at investments for student wellness and success funding, right? Around behavioral health for children, mental health for children, um, acknowledging that trauma has occurred and must be addressed. So I I don't necessarily believe that. But what I would say is that... um, 
you know, this notion or this, this idea that folks have that we need to be competing um, or we need to um, pit one part of childhood against another or children against families or older adults against our youngest when it comes to state dollars and meeting their basic needs. I, I think that's, I think that's a false premise um, that some people are operating under. I think that, you know, in Ohio and in much of this country, we do live in a land of plenty. Um, we do live in um, a country and estates and, you know, communities where people's needs can and should be met, um, especially those most vulnerable. And, um, you know, for any child to go to bed hungry, but for, you know, us to be able to do all these other things, right, and, and with, with state dollars, I, I think is, um, yeah, I think that's morally wrong. Kelly, I think you wanted to add something to that. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, I was just going to also add that with, with, the, with the federal um, COVID relief bills that have been passed, that has increased the FMAP, the federal matching dollars that come into the state for Medicaid. So, you know, the state of Ohio is bringing in $300 million every quarter extra through that that uh, federal matching um, dollars. So, you know, COVID has, has certainly, you know, put a damper on, on business, you know, with closures and unemployment. But with healthcare, they should not be skimping on healthcare because the, you know, those, those extra dollars coming into the state definitely, um, you know, are funding the care that's, that's taking place and that should be taking place. So I know that one of your key priorities at the Children's Defense Fund, you know, that's separate from this budgetary question is to demystify or destigmatize the role that the modern doula plays in today's maternal and child health sphere. So I found it really interesting that, you know, you're so invested in doulas. And I, I of course, know about doulas. I, I, I've talked about doulas with people and I know people who have had, had children um, and really benefited from doula care. But I think it's interesting that to, to learn that the Children's Defense Fund finds value enough to really get behind this issue. So I wondered if we could just talk a little bit about you know, what is this uh, this advocacy about, um, and and why is something like doula care uh, high yield within you know the um, uh, maternal and child health area? Doulas are significant in black and brown communities. These are women who live in the community. Um, they are familiar with the families in the community. They, they start working with a woman, you know, as soon as she finds out she's pregnant and they stay with her um, through the entire pregnancy, through birth. And in the case of Birthing Beautiful Communities, a, a group out of Cleveland, they stay with their moms for 80 weeks. So that's the whole first year of life for that child. So, and, it, and you know, it kind of goes back to um, the way communities used to be set up and the way families used to be set up where women would come together to help each other. You know, uh, you, know mm. you didn't have to be related. You didn't have to, to, you know, just as part of a community, they would come together and they would teach each other about, have you know giving birth and taking care of children and you know health care and they took care of each other and that's kind of you know th what doulas are doing it's kind of getting back to the way communities used to work together to 
to take care of each other? You know, a lot of the research that we've seen in recent years about infant and maternal health has a lot to do with, um, you know, toxic stress and the toxic stress of uh, systematic racism, the toxic stress of not having basic needs met, and how that toxic stress has a significant impact on the health of the mother and the health of the baby. Now, what's, I think, um, really uh, intriguing, and I think the research um, has shows is really also very compelling, is that non-clinical care has a significant impact on the health of that mother and baby. So when you think about the role of the doula, right, they are there to almost act as like a health navigator, um, you know, addressing a lot of the non-clinical aspects of care that, uh, you know, an expectant parent might need, whether it be, you know, some of their concerns or uncertainty about being a mom or how do I do this or how do I access that, you know, and a doula can really play that role of helping, you know, mitigate a lot of that stress, mitigate a lot of that fear, you know, and helping moms from, you know, from their first trimester through pregnancy and delivery, you know, try to keep that stress at bay. And, you know, when we talk about toxic stress and its and its impact, um, Birthing Beautiful Communities, they've actually done some work around this, some research, you know, measuring cortisol levels um, in moms um, through their pregnancy and seeing what those levels look like, especially um, with the role or with a doula, um, presence and, you know, without that doula presence, um, you know, and I think that that's really important that you have that information there, um, you know, to show what that, you know, non-clinical care, what role that can play in bringing about healthy outcomes. You know, it's kind of funny. It also makes me think about HPIO when they've, um, released some of their reports around what, what are some of the, um, non-clinical factors that contribute to health outcomes. And actually, um, you know, it's, it's significant, you know, clinical care actually only addresses a small percentage of an individual's health outcomes. Yeah. HPIO being the Health Policy Institute of Ohio, yes. right? Sorry. Really important organization here in Ohio that uh, we, we link to, um, a lot. So uh, I wonder though, so you use the language specifically in, in um, you know, our conversations about this around demystifying and destigmatizing doulas. I, I wonder what is the demystifying that needs to be done? Like, what do people think doulas are and where is the disconnect there? I think there's often a conflation between a doula and a midwife, which you you want we want to make sure that we keep those two things separate the midwife is a clinical position she does have medical training she, she you know a doula is as tracy said she provides emotional physical and educational support she acts as a voice as an advocate for the woman during her health care um and you know i think sometimes when people hear the word doula i, I think for a lot of people it it rings as something kind of other and if they're not comfortable with it and I think especially when you talk about Medicaid coverage of that if if you don't understand um, you know all of the things that Tracy just went through with with um, the toxic stress and the education and all of those other services that a doula provides to a woman you might not understand well 
this woman just wants someone to be there with her and hold her hand. Why are we paying for that? But it's, you know, it goes so much deeper than that with, um, I mean, you can even look at, um, look at Serena Williams and the trouble as a famous woman with access to the very best healthcare someone could afford. And she nearly died because the healthcare system didn't want to listen to her when she said she, that something was wrong. They didn't want to listen. Now, if, you know, imagine now take a woman who is maybe a single mom. She's, you know, she's working. She's trying to take care of herself. She's going into a, a, a doctor and he doesn't want to listen to her. How many of us are going to speak up and say, you, you have to listen. Something really is wrong when they don't medically think that there's, you know, in their opinion, there's nothing wrong. So that doula can be there as, a, as a, an outside voice. So House Bill 142, which is the legislation that I know you're excited about, uh, is is hopefully going to address some of the issues that you identify as um, serving as barriers with doula care. I wonder if we could talk about the legislation a little bit specifically. And and I'm just curious. So so you mentioned Medicaid. What are the actual issues? What kind of challenges do doulas face? Are there access and licensing issues? Are there reimbursement issues? Like, what kind of challenges are we talking about? And 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 does HB one forty two address these? Some of them, all of them. Uh, let's let's help listeners to understand that a little bit. Sure. Um, the challenges are not necessarily ones that doulas face, but they are one that ones that women face trying to access a doula. So currently. If you want to access a doula, it is an out-of-pocket expense or, you know, there is some limited funding through through pathway hubs, um, through, you know, um, philanthropic money. Mm-hmm. But mostly, you know, some of these doulas do this um, free of charge for some patients that, that they feel really need the help. So, it's, it's more on the patient to have to pay for it. So, what, what this would do, what House Bill... Um, 142 would do would be to allow more women to access this care by having it formally reimbursed. Okay, yes. so, so this would be adding um, doula services to, to Medicaid. Got it. Yes. So I would want to say that um, first of all, doula services are, you know, currently um, can be Medicaid reimbursable in the state of Ohio. However, that doula has to be operating under the auspices of a, you know, a physician or um, a healthcare provider. So what this essentially does is allow the doula to operate, you know, as, um, you know, as an individual provider, um, non-clinical for, you know, to support um, women during um, women during pregnancy and childbirth and after. One of the interesting things about House Bill 142 also that I think um, is really important is that this is bipartisan legislation. You know, Representative Crawley and Representative Brinkman you know, they have brought forth this legislation together because I think they both recognize the importance that non-clinical care can have in the health of a mom and a baby um, and providing as many different avenues and options as possible to make sure that critical care is being provided. So the legislation itself, I think, is um, it's great news for, for us. And we're, we're looking forward to seeing what kind of support is also there in the Senate. I just want to comment on that briefly, though, which is to say, you know, we we encounter issues on this show all the time where there are bills that seem like no-brainers, right? Like, who could possibly be against this? (laughs) 
but that's not how it works sometimes in Ohio and in the world. So, you know, obviously, I guess we're, we're, in, the, we're in the stage where we're finding out um, who's going to show up and who's not and which kind of, uh, I know with scope of practice discussion, sometimes physicians groups and other different, you know, f- physicians assistants and nurses take different positions on things and they're not always what you'd think they would be. So I'm not saying that I understand or have a full view of what those different stakeholding positions would be, but certainly um, they do exist from time to time. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, I think one thing that we really want to stress is that this is non-clinical. So there's really not a scope of practice issue that these doulas would be stepping on the toes of nurses or stepping on the toes of doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of the doulas that I've spoken to do have great working relationships with with physicians. You know, many physicians will recommend a doula to a woman or, you know, a nurse may suggest it to a woman that, you know, that this might be helpful. So I, I think it's just, um, you know, more of an educational hill to climb is is getting out there what these doulas are doing and, and what their role is in the healthcare system. Let me just ask a quick follow-up on that, which is do you th- get the sense that most physicians, most nurses, most people involved in the birthing process understand doulas, or is that where the education needs to happen a bit? That actually the you know uh, obstetricians, for example, might know doulas sort of, but might not fully understand the, the ins and the outs. I mean, I know I, I appreciate what you're saying about scope of practice, that it's not a classic scope of practice debate, but uh, there still might be educational work to be done there. There's absolutely educational work to be done. I think anytime you have an extra person in a delivery room, you know, of course, they're, you know, physicians want to be careful about, you know, they want their moms to have healthy births and that's what they're all there for. And it, the, the sooner we can you know, allow them to work together as a team. And, uh, you know, the education piece out there of, of what doulas are actually trying to do and the advocacy work that they're doing for these women, all the better that, you know, that they can start working as a team for the, you know, the best outcome for the mom and the baby. Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about House Bill 142, also an important thing, is that it actually identifies about nine different groups that can provide certification and training for doulas. So they can actually have that credential in the state of Ohio. And it also calls on the um, creation of a doula advisory board so that there can be an agreed upon and uniform scope of practice, right? So right now doulas can be certified by any number of groups you know, either like a doula international group or maybe a local group, and all of them provide really great training and services. But this actually, you know, puts into practice, what is that uniform scope, right, that we have an expectation of for of all doulas that are credentialed, certified, licensed in the state of Ohio. And then also, it, as Kelly mentioned, it provides that education piece for physicians, for nurses, you know, they know exactly what the role is of the doula and also what a certified doula in Ohio, what their role is. So, um, you know, I, I think it bridges some gaps here, you know, around the education and awareness and, you know, practice, um, you know, quality standards, et cetera. And, and I think, too, you know, that's part of the comfort level. Currently, anyone can call themselves a doula. There's really nothing that stops them from doing that because there's no there's no established criteria or certification process. When that gets done, 
then when a physician or a nurse, you know, has a certified doula in the room, they will know what are their qualifications, what's their education, you know, all of that. And I think that will also lead to the, the comfort level of, of them to being part of a team. Well, th- thanks for indulging my very rudimentary questions about doulas. I mean, I, <laughs> one of the joys of doing this show is just learning new things about things. And, you know, um, there's so much to learn in health and healthcare. Um, and I, I imagine when you do the kind of work you do for Children's Defense Fund, you know, you also have to constantly get updated on <laughs> emerging ideas that are, are coming along. And, um, you know, ch- child health and maternal health are expansive, broad areas that, as Tracy mentioned, for example, even, you know, have huge consequences for the life course. So we shouldn't just box it up and put it into one little corner. This is healthcare we're talking about. It's just the kind of beginning of, of, of that longitudinal um, um, trajectory. So um, I really appreciate the fact that we're having these conversations. I hope that this is the first conversation of many uh, and the budget process. Now, just for our listeners, so that we're, we're, in the middle, we're in the middle of the biennial budgeting process, what are the key dates to look for? What are the key points that um, we need to watch for as we go and see how this plays out? Well, right now, the budget uh, starts in the House. And it is having committee hearings right now. Normally, uh, by the end of April, they will try to have that out of the House, you know, out of committee and voted on by the full House and then sent to the Senate where it starts that same process over again. It'll be broken up into committee hearings. And um, the the main date that we're looking at is June 30th. That is um, the day that the budget has to be finished by. So kind of looking at a date towards the end of April that is has not yet been determined. And then definitely the full process should be done by June 30th. Right. You know, the budget process itself is, um, is about a seven month long process for some longer, right? Because they're developing that budget before it gets introduced. Um, and it truly is a marathon and not a sprint. But I would say that, you know, the budget belongs to all of us. You know, this is the budget of the people of Ohio. So it behooves all of us to, you know, check in and see what's going on, especially about issues that we all care about, whether it be education, healthcare, you know, uh, uh, develop, Department of Development, um, you know, incentives for businesses. These are all reflections of what we want to see in Ohio and what will make Ohio, I think, a, a state worthy of our children in the future. So um, get involved, testify, call your legislators and just keep up to date. It's it's important, not just for today, but for many years from now. Well, we're going to be providing a lot of links on you know the show notes for this episode, but also in an ongoing way through Twitter, Facebook, just you know ways to know what's going on, to hear updates as they come, and also to follow the work that you're doing at the Children's Defense Fund. So thanks very much for taking some time today and uh, look forward to doing this again. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. My many thanks to Kelly and Tracy for taking the time to come on the show. I also want to thank Allison Paxson at CDF Ohio for helping us to pull this episode together and for the great work she does at CDF Ohio. As always, we're going to be including a bunch of links in our show notes at wcbe.org and prognosisohio.com so you can learn more about CDF Ohio's work and read up on some of the issues that we touch on in the conversation. This episode of Prognosis Ohio is hosted by me, Dan Skinner, and produced by me with editorial and production assistance from Claire McGee. Please take a minute to subscribe to the show and follow us on Twitter at, at @prognosisohio. 
As always, we encourage you to reach out via email or social media with your suggestions and your feedback. We always welcome your ideas for important issues you'd like to hear us engage with on the show. Stay tuned for our next episode dropping in about a week with our first ever Prognosis Ohio book conversation, in which I talk with author Brian Alexander about his new book, The Hospital. Okay, that's it for now. Thanks, everybody, and be well.